This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. Great to have you with us for another broadcast. So much to talk about. I find it very interesting whenever I am flying, especially, I always think about the smallness of man and, of course, the greatness of God. And I look at the earth below me and I think about who's down there and everybody's so small. What I also think about, though, is the fact that the earth is so huge And that leads me to get into the idea that so many things happen that we can't see immediately. And one of the things that we can't see immediately is the rotation of the earth. Now, I'm not trying to get into universe talk here. What I'm trying to say is there are some things that move so slowly that in the moment, you may not even think about the fact that they're moving. I don't, on an everyday basis, think about the earth's rotation. Do you? You know, and, and I don't think that's something most people probably think about, but certainly we think about it in the morning when we have a sunrise and when we have a sunset in the evening, when we have nighttime and daytime, we think about those sorts of things or the seasons, which come obviously every few months. We don't think about those minute by minute. We just take them for granted and all of a sudden things will shift. And where once you had sunshine, now it's cold and it's snowing and you've got ice on the road. And you know why? Because you go through it every single year if you live in that kind of a climate. Okay, well, it's winter now. We know it's going to happen, but it happens gradually. Now, culturally speaking, when things happen gradually, you also have a tendency not to think about it in the moment, but you need to. And I'll tell you what, we all need to have our thinking caps on watching what's going on during the course of this administration. And there are so many examples of that. I only have time to get into a couple of them right at the outset here. But I want to talk a little bit about what the Biden administration is doing in terms of shifting the culture, kind of picking up where Obama left off, not even kind of, but really picking up where Obama left off. Here's one of the examples. The U.S. Department of Education has now announced that officials are preparing to use taxpayer money for K-12 schools to advocate the idea that America is systemically racist. And anybody who thinks differently than that, children included, are part of the problem, whether they know it or not. This is via the Daily Signal. Since members of Congress reintroduced a legislative proposal this year to create national civic standards, the Education Department's new rule would help shape the content of those standards around the intolerant ideas of critical theory. In particular, as National Review puts it, President Biden is set to push critical race theory on your local schools. And it's a little bit, according to some of these pundits, like the race to the top grants that the Obama administration put in place. You want to get money, you better do what we want. And so a lot of people stood up against the race to the top grants and everything that was going on during those years. But now we have President Biden's Department of Education signaling its intent to impose the most radical forms of critical race theory on America's schools. And according to Stanley Kurtz at National Review, this is very much including the 1619 Project and the so-called anti-racism of Ibram X. Kendi, who pretty much advocates a massive and indefinite expansion of reverse discrimination. Biden is obviously co-opting conservatives' interest in reviving traditional U.S. history and civics to deliver its perfect 
opposites, federal imposition of the very ideas that conservatives aim to combat. They've just put out this proposed new rule establishing priorities for grants in American history and civics education programs. That rule gives priority to grant projects that incorporate racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse perspectives. Again, we're back to the same nonsense. The rule goes on to cite and praise the New York Times landmark, quote unquote, 1619 project, as well as the work of Kendi as leading examples of the sorts of ideas the Biden administration wants to spread. The programs immediately targeted by Biden's new priority criteria for American history and civics grants are small, but once they're in place, they will undoubtedly influence the much larger and vastly more dangerous. And write this down so you don't remember, you don't forget that this particular piece of legislation is out there. The civic Secures Democracy Act. That bill would appropriate a billion dollars a year for six years for history and civic education. Support for leftist action civics, action civics, is already written into the priority criteria of the bill itself. Kurtz argues that additional priority criteria in the Civic Secures Democracy Act, criteria favoring grants targeted to underserved populations and the mitigation of various racial, ethnic and linguistic achievement gaps would be interpreted by the Biden administration as a green light to fund critical race theory in the schools. The new draft federal rule for grant priority in American history and civics education makes it clear that this is indeed the Biden administration's intent. So, If you have kids in public schools, you better keep your eyes out. You better pay attention to what's going on because critical race theory is about to be unleashed in the public schools, at least initially in a small way. It's coming. It's coming. This is the value that the left wants to teach in every single sector of our society, that if you are white, you're a racist and there's no way out. And therefore, all sorts of resulting policies have to be put into place to make things right again. And I'll tell you what is so heartbreaking about the entire thing. Not only is it a bogus theory, but what it does is it it unravels the country. Do you need to turn on the news any more than you ever have before in your life to see that the country is unraveling because of critical race theory? It's unraveling. I was thinking about this recently. It was just a few years ago. We weren't talking about this stuff. It's weird how sometimes people cannot see something until some professor comes up with a theory and it spreads like wildfire and then all of a sudden people get all upset but it never bothered them before and they were living their lives and they were happy they didn't necessarily look at their neighbor as a racist but once this theory took root like some kind of horrible COVID-19 wannabe virus only ideological in nature all of a sudden oh my eyes have been opened. I'm woke. Oh, this is horrible. Everybody's horrible. Well, think back to how it was years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Did everybody hate everybody? I'm not saying that there was no problem in America, but you go back to 1964 and there was a problem of racial segregation and it was corrected. And that's how it should be. If you have a real injustice, as I believe that was, then you correct it. And then you come together And hopefully there's forgiveness and you move on. And when crimes are committed, you make sure that the justice system takes care of those things insofar as it's possible. Uh, We have systems in place to deal with wrong things, wrong policies, 
But we don't have the ability, I don't think, to recover from critical race theory other than pushing back against it with all of our might. We are a country in which e pluribus unum has always been the guiding principle that people from all over the world who have come to the United States and have embodied and loved the principles of freedom, everything embodied in our Bill of Rights, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, inalienable rights that were granted to us by our creator, and you have a total opportunity as an American, whether you're here for many, many years or generations, or you came over last year, you have an opportunity as an American, if you work hard, to be able to make it here. And it's not that way in most of the rest of the world. And that's why so many people want to come here. But now we have the problem of the Biden administration not only trying to destroy e pluribus unum, but now they're just redefining words. They're just flat out Orwell. You don't have to read 1984 anymore because you're living it. You are living it. Let's see. Now you can't say illegal alien. At least you're, if you're in the government, if you're in the Border Patrol, for example, oh, no, the Biden administration says you have to call illegal aliens non-citizens. You know what, folks? Your government does not have the right to tell you how to speak, period. I say the same thing about this pronoun nonsense with LGBT. I'm not using wrong pronouns. Throw me in jail. I'm not going to call a man a woman and I'm not going to call a woman a man and you can't make me. Well, you could try to make me, but you're not going to make me. Redefining words, redefining history, redefining reality. Everything has to be deconstructed. And how many people look at the ideological turning of the earth for one moment and say something huge is happening here. What do we do about this? Well, we can't stick our heads in the sand. We have to pay attention to it and we have to fight back against it. If not for us fighting back against it, who will fight? We have generations of Americans to come who are counting on right-thinking people at this moment in history, especially Christians, to stand for the truth, because we have the truth. We're going to come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people. And, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or special hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. When we went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible Leak is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. 
the lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. One of the longstanding arguments for legalizing marijuana has been that its illegality has been a disaster. Critics have complained about the waste of spending billions on arrests and court costs and incarceration, and now a lot of them are rejoicing that weed legalizing states like Colorado and Washington are making millions off the sale of marijuana for health care and education. And of course, New York is next in line after it recently legalized recreational marijuana. But as my next guest rightly points out, encouraging drug use and other vices actually risks social catastrophe and whatever happened to just say no anyway. We're going to talk about it today with Howard Husick, who is a City Journal contributing editor. And over there, he has written a great article on this subject, Government Against Bourgeois Values. He's also a senior fellow at the Philanthropy Roundtable and adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the forthcoming book, The Poor Side of Town. And Howard, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Janet. Thanks for having me. Oh, you bet. A lot of us remember Nancy Reagan. This was not that long ago. Well, maybe it was, but I remember Just Say No. We were supposed to just, in this war on drugs, just say no to drugs. How did so many Americans get to the place where legalizing marijuana came to be considered a good thing and no longer a vice? We did kind of a moral flip here a little bit. Well, so many people just started using it that the the commonness of it I suppose, helped to break down the convention. But there's no doubt that the 60s generation, which includes me, was a libertine generation. And beginning in the 1970s, an organization called the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws started lobbying for this, and they played a long game, and eventually they won. Well, they have. We've seen state by state go in this direction. As you mentioned in your piece, New York has been one of the most recent ones. But what are the dangers of government becoming a co-conspirator in vice, as it were. They say this is great because then you'll be able to get money for things like health care and education, as I mentioned. But what happens when we go in the direction of vice and, and some of the problems that come from that? Yeah, it's incredible that this is sold as a tax-raising re- uh, measure, as if there are no health care costs associated with drug use, yeah. as if there'll be no healthcare costs associated with uh, auto crashes from those driving under the influence, just as with alcohol or maybe not worse. So it's exactly right to say the government is a co-conspirator. In New York, the governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, said, well, we'll raise $350 million this way. Well, whose lives are you hurting this way? There's no consideration given to this. And there's been very, very little consideration given to the uh, medical literature you know, we worry about the, the most modest side effects from the COVID vaccines, and we stop the J&J vaccine from being distributed because of rare side effects. The effects of marijuana are well documented. But apart from whether those should be considered or not, it's with us, 
And government, in order to make money from this, is going to implicitly, or even explicitly, as it does with gambling through the lottery, it's going to have to encourage people to do this. Mm. And so that's the most frightening part of it. Yeah, the lottery is a really good example because I know the lottery has been pushed in these states as, oh, we're going to raise so much money for education. But at least in some cases that I know of anecdotally, it really hasn't filled the coffers as much as they promised. So even the promise of helping to fuel other good social goods doesn't pan out necessarily. Well, it doesn't, and we know that it's a highly, it amounts to a highly regressive tax that poor people are more likely to spend a high percentage of their disposable income on lottery tickets. And who do we think is going to be opting out of marijuana legalization? In New York State, I know it's true in Massachusetts and other states that's legalized it as well, local communities have the right to opt out, not to have retail marijuana outlets in their community. And you know that affluent communities are the ones they are. I'm not making this up. It's already been, it's already clear in Massachusetts. Affluent communities are opting out. The cities are going to opt in. And that's where the money will go, I suppose. But that's where the costs will come to bear as well. Yeah, that's a really important thing for people to understand. I think you're completely right. That will be what will happen more and more. You're right. And that harms people even more on the lower end of the sector of income. So when you talk about encouraging drug use, just being the latest in this string of anti-bourgeois virtue signals from government, can you speak to that a little bit? Because I know you've written on this topic, going back to how these social programs have influenced these kinds of trends. Put it together for us, if you would, so people kind of understand and the ideology that's informing some of these policies. Yeah, well, I wrote a book published a couple of years ago called Who Killed Civil Society? And the, the thesis was that, uh, you know, in the pre-60s, uh, uh, pre-New Deal era, uh, our norms were really shaped by religious institutions, by uh, secular institutions, too, like the Boy Scouts, the 4-H, uh, uh, the YMCA, which is a quasi-secular institution. Nice. And they emphasized what I called formative values, honesty, integrity, uh, regulating your impulses, you know, silly things like those. (laughs) And uh, government began to step in with social programs, and it really expanded them in the 60s. And its theory was quite different. It, It focused on the reformative. You might go wrong, but we have social workers that can fix you up and get you right on the right track. And so we spend today in something called the Administration for Children and Families. You never heard of it, but it's, it's the biggest part of the Health and Human Services Department, $53 billion a year on these sorts of reformative social programs yeah. for teen pregnancy, delinquency, substance abuse, substance abuse. We're picking up the pieces all the time. And guess what? It's clear that we don't do very well at picking up the pieces, that we need the formative values you know, that church provides, that that the Boys and Girls Clubs can provide, that the 4-H provides. Yep. That's what we have to get back to. Well, you're right about that. I also find it a little ironic because a lot of these people pushing for drug legalization are horrified at the idea of cigarettes. So how does that work? <laughs> I'm not figuring that one out at all. Yeah, how do you hold those two things in your in your head at once? Yeah. You know, I... I, I, I but they clearly think that it's it's somehow harmless, you know. But I I would refer them to the National Institute of Health, and which is uh, has great studies on the the clear uh, harm that uh, uh, marijuana use 
uh, can lead to, you know, we worry about these these mass shootings. Uh, you know, people can can really have their mental health badly affected by drug use. And, you know, on all these lottery ads, which uh, suffuse the airwaves, there's always a little uh, disclaimer at the end. If you have a gambling product call, problem, call this number. Oh, right. <laughs> right. You, you know, so it's <laughs> as if we're ignoring these things. Yeah. Well, and that's so the problem. So we think we can be libertine and healthy at the same time. And how much tax revenue are we going to lose because people are sidelined from the labor force because they're in a fog of drug use. That's right. Well, right. And and even with the stimulus checks, as you point out, when you're getting handed things or when things are made easy for you, don't you then have less incentive to have those formative values in place in your life? Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a, I'm not doctrinaire on this. You know, we had a terrible epidemic and pandemic and we've had economic shutdowns. And so the idea that people need to be tidied over, I think that's that's realistic, but you don't want to take it too far. And one thing that, that I think that progressives forget is that there's no such thing as a dead-end job, that no matter what job you take, you are, you are exhibiting and having reinforced the values of, of going to a job yes. and getting up in the morning yes. and, and understanding how to fit into a workforce. And you are actually being paid in that way in a way that uh, goes over and above your actual payment. And you'll never get that sitting at home. Well, that's an excellent point. You're, you're right about that because everybody has to start at the bottom and work your way up, but you are learning important character traits and skills while you're uh, engaging in that kind of responsibility. So when you're talking about drug legalization being the latest in this series of public policies undermining some of these formative values, what is the end result of all of this? What happens to society? Because you even say the next step very well could be legalizing prostitution, and there are people talking about this. Well, we have a, a, a legislation proposed in New York State to that effect. Crazy. I'm not, I'm not just yeah. hypothesizing right. or speculating. Well, you know, I, I don't know where it leads. You know, I, I think it leads to, I think one place it will lead, and those who worry about inequality, you know, we're, we're going to see a divide between those who may not preach the healthy habits but practice them. Yes and those who take up the message that libertine values are not going to hurt you. And so I think we could have an increasing divide. You know, everybody talks about, and and rightly so, the opioid overdose epidemic. Well, part of that comes from the the belief that there's there's no harm in these things. Sure. That uh, pleasure is more important than the satisfaction of achievement. And this is a a terrible mistake. Totally right. And you know what comes to mind is our founder's idea that only a virtuous people can retain a republic. I mean, at what point do we have a tipping point where we say we want to be as libertine as possible because that's what the people want and that's what gets me votes as a politician? There has to be a tipping point, it would seem, if you continue to go in the direction of vice as opposed to virtue. It would seem so anyway. Well, that's certainly the concern. And I, I think that those of us who are who are worried about this have got to find the language in, in the public square to convince people that we are not some uh, marginal leftovers from the past, right. but that our views are actually uh, constructive, they can make for a better world, and that we shouldn't be intimidated by those who say that 
we're a bunch of cranks. Yeah, I agree with you there because I think it, it's easy to look at one issue and say, oh, I don't care so much about that issue. And then the next thing comes down the line and then you say, well, this is a bridge too far. At some point, you have to look at it as you are doing in your article as part of a bigger trend that is very concerning for the future of the country. And I agree with you. We really need to pay attention to it. Howard Husick is with us, City Journal contributing editor. You can read his stuff over at cityjournal.org. Thank you so much, Howard. It was great to talk to you. Really appreciate your being with us. It's a pleasure, and thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Remember that old Lewis Carroll quote, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get? I often feel like that. You probably do too, especially if you have kids. And you might often ask, is there any way that I can better maximize my time? The answer is Yes, and we're going to get some guidance on it today from my guest, Dr. Magdalena Battles. She is a writer and conference speaker and author of the book. We'll be discussing 10 time-saving tips for busy parents. Magdalena, it's great to talk to you again. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I think most parents regard themselves as too busy. I imagine you hear that a lot and they think they can't get a handle on things. What do you think is the main reason that so many of us feel that way? I think it's because we've become a culture that is becoming busier and busier. We're trying to help our kids get ahead, and so we get them in all these different activities, trying to help our kids to uh, become the most successful people that they can be. But unfortunately, it's eroding our family time, and it's taking away from our time in the home that we get to instill our our value and our time and and energy into our children. And uh, so it's something we need to be cognizant of, not only individually, but as a culture, that we take up a stand and say, you know what, we don't need to do it all. We can say, you know what, there are some things that we should do and other things, you know what, they can take a back seat for a while because our, our family time is more important Yes, I agree with you there. And I know you've got kids as well. Why is it, do you think, that kids' activities have taken up so much of the time of parents? It's it's kind of nuts when a lot of us think back to our own childhoods and think, well, I did this and that, but it didn't consume my mother's life. I mean, what what right. went wrong here exactly? Right. Just a competitive culture, I really think it is, and that we love our kids so much and, and we have more resources and, and um, the ability to instill things in our children, and so we do. We enroll them in too many activities. Um, when I was growing up, my parents said, we have to work. You know, yeah. if, if you want to join cross-country or join this thing, you better find a ride home. Find a friend <laughs> you can ride home with. Yeah. And, you know, there's some good thoughts in that, too. You know, maybe we need to be uh, pitching in with and helping out other families and, and saying, hey, how about you drive two days a week and then, you know, you can take my kid two days and I'll take yours two days. Whatever you can do to help each other out because we shouldn't be running ourselves ragged and um, to make it more of a 
a team effort as a community as well to help out one another. Well, that's a great idea. One of the things that you advocate is knowing your hierarchy of importance. And I know you say community is one of your uh, number five. I think it's in the top five of what you say or your list of things that are on your hierarchy of importance. But why do you need to know what your hierarchy of importance is and how do you figure that out? Well, uh, the reason that you need to know what's most important to you is so that when it comes time to saying yes to things, you say yes to the right things, and you can say no a lot more easily. And that's part of our problem these days is we're we're saying yes because every opportunity sounds like a good opportunity, and it might be a great opportunity, but does it really align with the values that you have in life and what you want to achieve by the end of your lifetime? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Um, And for myself, it might not be playing out a women's soccer league, you know, I might think, oh, that sounds like fun, but is it really contributing to what my goals are in life? Is it giving back to my community? Is it helping my family? Is it, um, you know, achieving my personal hierarchy? No, it really isn't. Um, And there is a time and place for enjoyment and activities, but personally, soccer, playing soccer wouldn't be one of them for me. (laughs) No, me neither. (laughs) Me neither. What would be at the top of your list? What, what, you know, obviously when you talk about for uh, having a family mission statement, for example, you say, we love God first, we're a Christ-centered family. You know, obviously church is a very important part of your life, community, but what are some of the other things, would you say, that are at the top of your own list? Of my list, it's God first, then my spouse, and then my children underneath that. We make sure that our marriage comes first before the children. And that's something that often gets mixed up in our culture these days. And we really need to look to what God's Word says on it, too, that, you know, marriage, it goes God first, then marriage. And that way we do serve our family in the best possible way that we can. And for me, some of the other things are um, personally uh, involvement in um in community activities, and then also my writing and, and those my career. So, And I think that's common with a lot of people, but sometimes we get those things mixed up. And so we have to decide how, you know, that ranking of your hierarchy of importance. And in the book, I go through a series of questions so that you can, the reader can identify exactly what their hierarchy is, and then they can list those things in the order that is most valuable to them. Makes it a lot easier in the long run to be able to say no to activities that don't fulfill their needs. That's good. Yes, absolutely. So another thing that you advise is don't do too much for your kids. I know you mentioned things like chores. The kids ought to be doing chores here, here. I agree with you 100%. What do you think people are doing wrong in parenting as far as doing too much? What kinds of things are parents doing for their kids that they shouldn't be doing? Uh, well, I think a lot of times we, we find that, and I've heard other parents say that too, and I've, I've succumbed to it too, we, we say, oh, you know what, it's just easier if I do it. Yeah. Well, that might be true, you know, in the beginning, but guess what, in the long run, you end up doing it all as the parent. We need to instill those skill set in our children and teach them to do those different activities. Even though we may be able to do it better right now, guess what, if you teach them After a few weeks, they're going to be able to do it on their own, and they're going to be able to do it to a a quality enough standard that is acceptable. We can't let, you know, uh, 
perfection get in the way. If we want our kids to be a part of the household, then we need to ask them to do things, clean the bathrooms, um, wash the floors. You know, we need to teach them these things, not only to be a part of the family, but also so that they can become responsible human beings. And when they leave our household, they know how to do all these things and, and can take care of their own home. Well, I wonder if part of what drives parents who do that is going back to being busy. You know, I I want the floor cleaned properly. I don't have time. We have people who are coming over tomorrow night. If I let Johnny do it, he's not going to do it right. I mean, how much of that plays into this desire? If I do it, then it's going to be done right. That kind of comes from a mindset of almost perfectionism, that it's got to be done right. And training the child is kind of secondary. Right. Yeah. And we need to let go of that, that sense of perfection. You know, it's, it's not... Um, a reality. We all have this image of super mom or perfect mom. It's not, it's a myth. It it doesn't truly exist. So we need to stop holding ourselves to this standard of perfection because it doesn't exist. We need to start looking at life as, you know what, I'm going to get it done and get it done good enough. And good enough means let's let the kids get involved and have them help because their job is going to be done good enough. And we teach them how to do it good enough. And so if Johnny isn't going to do a great job that first time, hey, then provide some tips and, and help them show them, you know, you need to get in the corners or whatever it may be that you need to teach them each time they do it so they become better and have more skills yes, along the way. That's good. So if you have, for example, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 15-year-old, how would you parcel out, just as an example, some of the tasks and the chores that need to be done around the house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, kids are never too young to start chores. I say they can start as young as 18 months, um, even just picking up their own toys. And so a five-year-old is quite capable of doing things like unloading the dishwasher, making their beds. Um, The older kids, they become more competent at doing outdoor activities. Our kids, you know, we have seven-year-old twins and a nine-year-old. We all did mulch around our entire house this weekend. And so the kids, including my seven-year-old boys, hauled 40-pound bags and learned to pick them up themselves, and they helped spread mulch. Great. Yeah, and, and guess what? Everybody had a great attitude about it, and it was they were getting rewarded in the long run, too. So not only rewarded in the short run, saying, okay, when we're done, we'll go swimming in the pool as a family when we're all done, um, but they also get check marks on their chart, and that goes towards earning the things that they really want. We don't just hand things out if they want a Lego set or want a, a specific soccer ball. Um, they know that they have to earn it. They're not just going to get it handed to them, so they have to earn check marks on their chart. So when they're helping out and being a part of the family and we're team battles, they're earning things that they want as well. So there's a reward system, and that goes into play, and, and especially as they get older. So instill that young so that when it comes time for them to want, you know, oh, I need gas money. Um, we need, you know, I want to have money for to go on a date. You know, they have to earn that. I think that that's fantastic because when you're talking about not doing too much for your kids, another area, uh, and aside from doing the chores and the tasks that need doing around the house, is money, just handing kids money when they haven't really done any work. And I think that that's a really important point that you're making. We're going to take a very short break. We'll be back with Dr. Magdalena Battles. Her book is called 10 Time-Saving Tips for Busy Parents. Stay with us on Janet Meffer today.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a health care program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new health care program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit health care sharing ministry that offers affordable health care sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Thanks so much for being with us. Dr. Magdalena Battles is helping out busy parents who often feel the crush of running a household and getting everything done in a particular day or week or month or year. 10 Time-Saving Tips for Busy Parents is the name of her book. And we were talking about doing too much for your kids and how you really need to make your kids have a more responsible lifestyle. Don't do too much for them. What about the home in general, Magdalena? When you're talking about keeping an organized home and an organized life, for a lot of us, it's easier said than done. How do you do it? Yes, it's, it isn't necessarily easy, but it makes life easier in the long run. I love the Ben Franklin quote that he said, um, for every minute spent in organizing, an hour is earned. <laughs> so you really are saving time in the long run um, when you have an organized home. And, and, and it doesn't mean that things need to be perfect, but it means you have a system that's in place so people can find the things that they need on a daily basis. And you're not spending 10 minutes every morning looking for lost shoes or lost backpacks <laughs> or whatever it may be. So uh, in a household, it's, it's helpful to have things like um, a station where you have the backpacks hanging up and a place where everybody's shoes belong. So they know when they walk in the door, they put their things immediately there. Um, and that's something we've had in our household since my kids were young so that they learn those sort of habits. And, and the same, you know, with myself, where does my purse go? It goes on a speci- special hook, <laughs> so I know where to find it. Um, and, and same with my cell phone, because, you know, losing those things, it, it takes time, but it also makes it the household more frustrating and also starts your day stressful when you can't find your things. So it, it not only saves time, but it also makes your, your household run a lot smoother. Yeah. What, what about things like paperwork? That seems to be the bane of my existence is getting all the bills paid, getting this done and that done, insurance and these sorts of things. How do you stay organized in that area? 
Yes. Uh, well, we have um, a desk that we use for um, where the bills go. So it doesn't just end up on random piles throughout the house. It goes on the desk where the bills are paid. And then once a week, we go through and we pay the bills. Um, and having a system and putting it in the schedule, you know, not waiting till the last minute or until things are overdue. So it's something we need to make a priority. You know, we, when we say put it on the schedule, it means, okay, um, Wednesday mornings, this is what I'm going to do. I set aside a half hour that this is what I do during that time. Um, so it, it just is setting up a, a routine in your life and a, a method of organization that's going to make your life easier in the long run. Yes. So now when you talk about routine, you say that routines are a must. And obviously, some people are more happy about routines than others. And sometimes there's a divide between the parents and the children on that. What kinds of routines do you think are important for families to maintain? Yeah, uh, routines are essential for children, and, and you can see it even if you were walking to a, um, any random preschool environment. You look at their wall, and they usually have a schedule, and the schedule will show their routines. It'll show, you know, with little pictures. It won't even have words, it's so the kids understand what they're supposed to be doing at certain times during the day. We need to do the same in our home, meaning when the kids get home, they need to know what is expected of them. Are they supposed to do their homework before they can go outside and play? Or are they just going to randomly get in trouble for going outside and playing um, because they don't know that they're supposed to be doing their homework or their chores in advance? Um, Having those rules set up and those routines help kids to have that structure that they so badly crave. And research has research has definitely shown that kids thrive under structure and routine. In that, that also means scheduling some free time because our kids do need playtime and free time. So that needs to be as part of the schedule. So we can't be over scheduling our kids and have them so busy that they don't get that free time. We want to make sure that's built into that schedule as well. How strict do you get about routines? Because there's obviously a spectrum you can operate on where you do this at this time of day. But like with little kids, they're not always going to go down for a nap at the exact same time. Right. There might be an extenuating circumstance in the morning where they woke up later or earlier and it's going to necessitate moving things around. How strict do you get with routines and where is there some room for, you know, a little bit of error or a little bit of adjustment? Right. Yeah. I think that flexibility is key in life. So we want to have routines set in place, but then we allow for flexibility on a day-to-day basis. So your goal might be, okay, the kids are in bed at 7.30 every night, and then that way they can wake up by 6.30 um, because we find kids need a lot more sleep than um, what they're getting in many households. Um, So we need to make those those expectations set for our children so that they have an understanding of, okay, it's seven o'clock now. Now it's time to wind down. Now it's time to start getting ready for bed because 730 is lights out. So you set those expectations, but things do come up. So we need to have some flexibility and understanding. Um, But overall, setting that expectation is going to help instill that in your kids so that, um, and it's not something that happens overnight. For some kids, if you've never done a schedule, it might take a few weeks for them to get used to the schedule, right. but setting it and then setting that expectation and being firm enough about it that you're going to not cave on it day after day is what's most important saying, you know what, this is what we're doing. And, and if 730 is a problem, you know, and then you need to start a little earlier on the bedroom routine, yeah, you know, that's good. set yourself up for success. For sure. Now let's go to another one that will warm a lot of women's hearts. Take a break from gourmet meals. Talk about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. When my husband and I were first dating, when we first got married, we, um, we loved cooking in the kitchen together. We loved cooking gourmet meals. Well, now we don't have 
time for that. We really don't, but I like to have home-cooked meals in the home. So we, um, I don't want to order takeout. It's typically not as healthy, and it gets expensive. Yeah. What I have found that works for my family is um, pre-made meals. Yep. I love Sam's Club and Costco. You go into their uh, fresh section where they make their fresh food, and I'm able to get things like fettuccine alfredo with chicken in it and things like um, one of my family's favorite is the meatloaf and mashed potato combo. And it's already pre-made. It's fresh. It's healthy. I just put it in the oven and bake it. And then we have a home-cooked meal. And what I find is that it is actually cheaper for me to buy it from them pre-made than it is for me to buy all the ingredients and make it from scratch. Oh, wow. So I'm saving money in the long run as well. And and it's nice to be able to have that home-cooked fresh meal. There's something about walking into a home and having fresh cooked food. It yes. just fills the home with warmth and, and uh, you know, invokes the senses. And it makes kids feel you know, this is my home, and this is a tradition that we have is home-cooked meals. Even though you might not be making it from scratch, you can still bake it in the house. And, and that's just one thing, one of the tips that I have in the book that seems to help our family to be able to have those meals at home, but I don't have to go through all the effort. I because, think that's great. Yeah. I've done the same thing. The other thing, crock pots. Yes. I love crock pots. And the other thing is making meals on the weekend to freeze. That, that one has been yes. a real lifesaver for our family, too, that I'm able to get some of the cooking done when I have a little bit more time. And then, yeah, voila, you've got a home-cooked meal, but you you didn't have time to make it that day, but you could still pull it out of the freezer, so it worked out. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Great tip. Excellent. No, I agree with you. I think that's good because, again, you know, it's hard. You can really drown as a mom sometimes when you're taking care of the kids, all the activities, the household. And if you're doing something yourself, it can really overwhelm you at times, which kind of segues into another tip that you have here, which I think is very important. I, I could not live without this, but making use of calendars and to-do lists. Now, sometimes we can overdo it on the to-do list and feel like we're a failure because we didn't get through it all today. But uh, what are some of your tips in that regard as far as planning your day, planning what you need to get done? How do you do it? Uh, I like to do it on a daily basis in the evening so that I set myself up for success for the next day. So what I do is my husband and I, we like to watch Netflix at night. We like to binge different series. It's one of our habits. Uh, but what, we, what I do is I pull out my calendar, my to-do list while we're watching whatever we may be watching, and I'll go through and look at what I have going on the next day, and I'll put it on my to-do list, and I'll probably highlight you know, the appointments that I have. And then I have my other items that, I need, that I'm looking to get done that are my goals to get done. Well, if I have something on the list, like say I have thank you notes that I need to get done, um, and then I have a doctor's appointment. Well, I know that what I can do, one thing I can do to prepare myself for success the next day is I can grab those thank you notes and put them in my purse so that when I'm going to my doctor's appointment, if I'm sitting in the waiting room or, you know, waiting in the exam room, I can be writing out thank you notes and getting that done off my to-do list. Wow. So it's a matter of setting yourself up for, um, you know, the ability to get these things done in a timely manner. So I do it the night before because in the mornings, I, I'm not a morning person necessarily, so I'm kind of groggy and um, I, I wake up going, what do I have to do? Uh, but I can look at my list. So I, I call it a brain dump. I do a brain dump every night, um, put it all out on paper so that I can look at it the next day. And it's okay not to get everything done on the to-do list, but it's, it, it is satisfying to be able to cross it off. So that's another tip that I have is use a paper, uh, paper and pencil method, because it makes it easy to see everything at a glance. Good. You don't have to pull it up on your phone. And you also get that satisfaction of crossing it off. Yes, that is very satisfying. And writing thank you notes out of your purse, I think 
that's that is dedication. I think that's really <laughs> that's great. But you know what? You got to grab the moments as you get them, and yes. I think that's a fantastic idea. There are a lot of great ideas actually in Dr. Magdalena Battle's book, Ten Time Saving Tips for Busy Parents. And you can find out more livingjoydaily.com is her website. And so good to have you here, Magdalena. Stay organized, and thanks a lot for the tips. Thank you. All right, you take care. God bless you. Thanks for joining us on Janet Mefford Today, and we'll see you next time. This hour of Janet Mefford Today has been brought to you by Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible, and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.